Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Hello, I am Nahid Samsami. I am a director of product at Heroku, and I am here with Jeff Dickey. Um, he's an engineer at Dropbox. And for many years, Jeff was um, a CLA engineer here at Heroku and a lead engineer on o the Oakleaf project, which is the open CLI framework. And we worked together We worked together on that, so I'm super happy to be here with Jeff today. And we're going to talk a bit about Oakleaf and command line interfaces. Um, welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Nahid. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so my first question, which I myself don't know the answer to, even though we worked together for a few years, was how did you come to work on command line interfaces? Yeah, so, uh, you know, CLIs, I, I was a back-end developer for, for many years before starting at Heroku, and um, you know, I always thought that CLI was a great way to interface with a computer. Um, you know, I've been a big Vim guy and, and really just like to live in the terminal as much as I can, like a lot of, like a lot of developers do. Um, and so, you know, I really admired, you know, well-built CLIs that uh, were very uniform, easy to learn how to use, easy to use and, and powerful. Um, and also as a Heroku user for many years before I started the company, I really admired the, the Heroku CLI. You know, commands like Heroku logs and learning how to pipe that to, um, to grep was one of my earlier, you know, uses of the terminal that uh, really taught me a lot about how to leverage the CLI in, in useful ways. And, and, you know, Heroku run as a way to just run, you know, ad hoc commands inside of a living server was uh, was also a really great way to interface with the platform. So, you know, I really admired both the Heroku CLI and CLIs in general. Um, and actually, a funny story, I I was at a conference that Heroku put on. They, they did a couple of these conferences called Waza. Um, and uh, I was at one of them and I met who was then the current maintainer of the Heroku CLI. This was probably about three or four years before I uh, worked on it myself. And I, I was I was starstruck. I, I couldn't believe I was talking to the guy that that worked on the Heroku CLI because um, you know I just it was it was such a cool product you know um, and so I, I grabbed his ear for you know the whole night probably annoyed him a little bit uh, trying to get all the all the stories I could out of him about what it was like to do full time CLI development um, you know and then a few years later I saw the job posting that that Heroku had and I thought oh, I'll take a chance on this and uh, you know, thankfully I made it and it was. Uh, it was a lot of fun for, for several years to, to work on this product. Awesome. That is a really, that's a really cool story. Um, so when you, when you got here to Heroku, you'd been you know, thinking about the Heroku CLI for a while. When you got here, was there anything surprising about the code under the hood? You know, how, how it looked and how the CLI worked? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that are different about writing CLI code versus writing web and you know, backend code or, or desktop code or whatever other kind of software you want to write. I, I think at a code level, uh, the biggest difference is that the process only lives for you know, a few hundred milliseconds, ideally. Um, you know, there's some exceptions to that with Heroku Run and Heroku Logs, but most commands just, they run and then they exit. And so in that environment, the typical, you know, things you optimize for when writing code, being CPU bound and memory bound performance, 
really don't apply with CLI development because the you know memory especially not because even if you're leaking memory like mad, you, there's only so much you can leak over a couple hundred milliseconds. Then CPU it just doesn't tend to be doing sort of you know uh, uh, order n sort of operations that uh, that would grow you know um, so the big bottleneck tends to be um, startup time. You know, with, with scripting languages like Ruby and Python and JavaScript, uh, generally the way that you write that code is you put all the, you know, the requires um, for all the dependencies right at the top of the file. Um, this is especially true in JavaScript, which is what um, all the Heroku CLI and Oakleaf is written in. Um, and that pattern really doesn't work well for CLI development. If, if we did that with the Heroku CLI, it would take probably over 30 seconds to, to start, which would make it unusable. So Oakleaf does a lot of tricks under the hood to, to make that efficient so that the overhead that we have is still only, it's like 100, 150 milliseconds. I think that's about as good as we could get. Um, and that's one of the one of the only downsides of using of using JavaScript is, is, is that startup time. If we were using Go, that would be, uh, it would be non-existent. Oh, interesting. I mean, we, we've gotten that question a lot uh, working on Oakleaf of why we chose uh, JavaScript um, and not Go or, you know, Ruby or X other language. And so let's talk about that for a little bit. When you arrived at, at Heroku, the CLI was written in Ruby. Mm -hmm. And I remember at some point, I think it was before I started, the work had begun and you decided to move the CLI into Go and Node. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about why you made that, deci you made that decision? Yeah, so I came uh, to Heroku with a, with a mandate to rewrite the CLI. The Ruby uh, Ruby as a language did not work well, so I'll start with with why why Ruby was not good for us. Um, one, it was slow, especially on Windows. Not, I don't know how the performance is now. This this would have been in 2014 um, when this was going on. At that time, our benchmarks show that Ruby on Windows was about half the speed that it was on on Unix. Why was it slow on Windows? I don't know. I, I my guess is that Ruby makes a solid attempt to be compatible with Windows. Mm -hmm. The people who develop with it, um, but nobody's writing servers on Windows, so I think the performance generally is not that big of an issue. You know, like if you're running a Rails app or something, then the how performant Ruby is is not as important as it is to me writing a, a CLI that's that's in Ruby. So performance is one. Um, and again, that may be better now. I'm, I'm not familiar with how Ruby's development has gone. Um, another one was dependencies. So we had this plugin framework that, that allowed developers to extend the Heroku CLI and add their own functionality. And when you do that, you might want to add dependencies, you know, like a different HTTP client, for example. So for example, the HTTP client we used with Ruby and the plugins was Xcon. The problem was, XCon was delivered inside the CLI. So if you wanted to add any dependencies on your own, you couldn't do it. Um, and also the version of XCon that we used had to be global. It had to be the same version of XCon for all of uh, all of the plugins that were used it, which made updating it virtually impossible because in order to do it, I had to coordinate not only all the plugins that we use, but every other plugin to make sure that they were compatible with both the version it was coming from and to, um, which, which made it so difficult that we just really didn't use any dependencies. And, you know, writing everything in pure Ruby is okay, but there's a lot of things that we just wanted to use. You know, things like a Redis client would have been really nice, or, you know, um, doing stuff with WebSockets was another thing that, that just seemed impossible. So dependencies is another thing that, that 
Ruby didn't really allow for because the dependencies are sort of global. Like you add one gem to the project, and that's the only version you can have in the whole code base. And then uh, also the runtime dependency. Um, keeping the, the, you know, Ruby being a scripting language requires that you have Ruby installed on the machine when, when you run the, C, the CLI. Um, that's okay because Ruby is available on, say, all Macs. And we could, what we did is we just shipped Ruby with uh, the CLI on Windows as well. Uh, but then problems would arise if, if the version of Ruby that you're using wasn't the one that we supported. And this basically made it so we had to support every version of Ruby. Um, so that, that was a big problem. Um, so, yeah, to sort of wrap that up, that's, that's sort of the problems with Ruby and why we wanted to do language. Yeah. Um, so the sort of the favorite language I think at Heroku now is Go. Um, and that was the ideal candidate uh, when I started was, was to write it in Go. Um, so we, we did work on that, and that was the initial direction I held. But the problem with Go as a language is it didn't have any library support. You didn't have any dynamic libraries, so there was no way to extend the code base. You know, it's just it, everything gets packaged into a single binary, and there's no way to add anything onto it. So, you know, plugins were was the big, big problem with that. Um, today, Go actually does support libraries, but they're not supported on Windows, uh, which means even today we wouldn't be able to use uh, what they have. We, we did spike out a couple solutions um, that looked sort of like, you know, have a have a directory of separate binaries that could act like libraries. That may have worked. Uh, there were issues with that approach, like where are they going to get built, things like that. So I, I thought it'd be great to use Node for the plugins only. So that was the original idea and why we had, you know, a Go Node CLI was we had Go for like all the core stuff, Node for a plugin framework. Um, and so we, we went down that approach and it worked pretty well. The next problem we ran into was it was nice to have the core code look the same as the plugin code. You know, like let's say I'm making a modification to Heroku apps colon create, you know, the command that creates an app. If I want to make a modification to that, I really need the existing code as reference. And if the existing code is going to be all in Go and I'm going to need to write this in Node, that's not helpful to me at all. So that was the area where we shifted more of this to Node. So basically what we came up with was all app code, you know, things that work with Heroku. You know, this is this is pre-Oakliff, but Oakliff was, you know, sort of an idea in the back of our mind that we might want to release a framework this time. We would do all the Heroku command development in in Node, and then we'd have Go sort of as like a fast way to run everything. Um, and this was this from the user's perspective worked really well. Uh, we were able to keep the Node binary available and the right version, so we didn't have the same runtime dependency problems that we had with Ruby. We the help and everything was able to be displayed very quickly and instantaneously because. We didn't have any overhead running the CLI. It was just a Go CLI, and it knew what all the commands were, and so it could, it could display the help instantaneously. Uh, the problem was the um, just the complexity. A lot of the same code that we had, you know, things like dealing with standard out closing. You know, in the case of like piping to head dash n one or something like that, uh, you know, you have to have similar code in both the Go and the Node places. Um, dealing with configuration files if they exist, you know, updating. There's just an endless areas where we had to have the same code. And 
And uh, we just felt like we were really duplicating efforts. Um, and also the build script to actually create this Frankenstein of two languages was um, was something that, that nobody on the team wanted to touch. It was only me. And mm-hmm. basically, it was a make file that was my first time seriously using make. And uh, it was probably a 500-line monster of no, there was no way anybody could comprehend that. So, um, you know, we wanted a simpler approach. And we also thought, you know, if we're ever going to release as a framework, this is not going to work. So uh, so that's when we started the, the effort to move to pure node. And that was our V6 of the CLI. Um, and, and that was a big win. I think that's when everything coalesced and all these different avenues that we took to try different things out. It wasn't just the language. There was a lot of internal things that we were doing at the same time. Um, everything really coalesced around you know, uh, the CLI v6, and um, it got to a place where we were we were very happy with the uh, with the code base. Yeah, so it sounds like you, know, you went from Ruby to Node and Go, and then in v6, um, all of all of the all of the Go code was gone, and it yes. was purely Node. Yeah. Were there any? You know, were there any uh, special challenges with writing it in Node besides the one that you talked about with the startup time and the mitigations there? Were there other uh, drawbacks or mitigations that, or things that you had to do to make it workable? Um, I think the promise of Go and its single binary approach isn't as great as it sounds. Um, I think that's one reason why. So Go works fantastically well for a CLI. It's just fast. But the fact that it's a single binary, in my opinion, is a downside. Because yeah. one, you're gonna have to have other files there. If you're gonna have a CLI of good size, you know you're gonna need other things. Like for us, that might be um, a package of certs. It might be um, folder for auto updating to work. Um, you know, readme, just text files, configuration files. So you're gonna have a tarball no matter what. And and having a you know a single binary inside of that doesn't really matter. Like for us, mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's a bash file and a node file and it just lives there and it's happy. The other thing about using a scripting language like Ruby or Ruby or Node or Python is that when we get a support ticket, we can have the customer, because, you know, our customers, are they're smart people, they're developers. So if something's not going right, rather than us trying to diagnose it, we can have them go right into the code and edit it. It's like, oh, go to this line. We can show them the you know on GitHub. Say, I want you to edit this line to print this thing out, and then the turnaround time for us to be able to fix things ends up being really quickly. And we just have a single binary. That's not possible. You know, instead, what you have to do is, if if it don't, something that only can be reproduced on the customer's machine, uh, it, it involves adding some debug information, and then shipping that release, having the customer update. And then going through and asking them again, and it takes way too long. It's it's frustrating for everybody. So, um, anyway, single binaries is not not all it's cracked up to be, frankly. So you know that that's one thing about Node that that you know it it works okay, even though there's a runtime dependency, yeah. it's not so bad. Uh, another thing about like Node, I, I didn't talk about like, why Node is good. Like Node provides a way to do dependencies with with npm and the Node modules that. Um, unlike Ruby, you can have different versions of the same dependencies sitting side by side. So it makes it possible, really, for us to have plugins that have dependencies, and we couldn't do that with Ruby. Um, so that was a big win. Um, and also, JavaScript is the most popular language in the world. And you know, we write everything in TypeScript now, uh, which really provides a lot of guarantees and, and makes the code base very safe and 
uh, we've noticed a dramatic uh, drop in defects since we mm-hmm. since we uh, started with TypeScript. Really makes for a, just a pleasant working environment that. You know, even if developers don't like JavaScript, they usually know it. You know, they usually have had to write it at some point or another. And so, you know, whether or not it's somebody's favorite language, they can jump right into the CLI code base and, and start contributing right away. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Oakliff, the open CLI framework. Um, so you mentioned, you know, there was V6 of the, of the Heroku CLI, which was all in Node. Uh, and then I, I remember that the... Salesforce, one of the Salesforce teams came to us, um, you know, Salesforce, Heroku is part of Salesforce, and the Salesforce team came to us and they were um, looking into building a CLI and they wanted to see if they could build it upon the ho- on top of the Heroku CLI. Uh, initially, we talked a bit, bit about, uh, you know, having having them build it as a plugin, and, and then it turned out there were some differences between uh, what made sense for you know, their use case and, and ours. And so I remember, um, you know, you, you suggested the idea of having an open, of extracting the Heroku CLI into, you know, and so they'd be able to um, build their CLI, uh, but to be able to customize it for what the, they needed. Um, and we, you know, then we, it went a step beyond that into an open, an open framework that anyone could build a CLI on. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what inspired you to come up with that idea of making Oakliff uh, and make and extracting our Heroku CLI into an open source framework? Yeah, so, you know, as I said, you know, from the beginning, having the mandate to rewrite a new CLI, you know, I, I thought that it was really important for for us to release this as an open source framework if, if we could. You know, it was going to take a lot of, a lot of a lot of resources from Heroku to build uh, just the Heroku CLI in the way that we wanted it to. The, you know, Heroku is w- willing to devote um, a lot more resources. I think that would be normal um, to build a CLI because the CLI is so fundamental to the user's experience. And the customer directly interacts with the CLI. It's uh, you know one of the top selling points about our platform, and so it was crucially important that 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 be as good as possible. And so building something like that, where we really got the runway to, to do you know, really amazing things and, and spend the time to get it right, I thought was, was something that other people could use too. You know, other organizations where they're not going to have as much time to be able to devote to this, uh, they could really use the work that I'd done. Uh, the trouble was getting me there because I didn't think that I'd be able to do it right off the bat. You know, originally the Heroku CLI was just you know, one repository. It wasn't. It wasn't a framework, and I was. It was a hard enough job to figure out just what the Heroku CLI should look like. Not, you know, one generalization level beyond that, where you think about how am I going to design a framework so that somebody could build a CLI. I had to do the CLI first. So when Salesforce came along and they wanted to build their CLI on on the Heroku CLI, that was really the perfect opportunity for us to start thinking about what an open source framework could look like. Uh, it was far from uh, certain that we would go down that route. Um, first, we started out with just uh, a templatized Heroku CLI where they could have like a build step be run on top of it to, to, to transform it into their CLI. Um, and and that, was, that was not ideal for a lot of reasons, but we got to iron out all the areas where we wanted to do things differently. Um, Salesforce had, had a lot of different requirements that weren't important to us or would have just changed the experience in ways that, that we didn't like. 
um, things that maybe a customer might not even notice unless they were looking for, like how the help or the how the flags are structured when you look at the help, like you know what order they're shown in and how much spacing is here, and like it's little little things to a user, but um, you know, when, you, when you're thinking about CLI experience, you, you get very attached to these things and you have a certain way that you want things to look and you get um, very eager to have like the line count be short and different things. Um, so, And these are things that are specific to, you know, different CLIs. Yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah. you know, it was an easy, uh, it was easy guess for us that we would, if Salesforce is wanting to do these things differently, then other people will probably want to do them differently as well. So... You know, we, we really learned how to how to build a framework at that stage. And so, you know, we spent uh, probably a good year or two on that. And then um, as that was wrapping up, we we then spent another six months on Oakcliff as a, as a project itself to say, OK, now we've got the fundamentals of like what a framework could look like. Let's give it a name. That was a that was a struggle. I'm sure you remember need. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We, <laughs> I can talk a bit about that. We had a, you know, we were we were ready. To, we were ready to, um, you know, release you know release Oakleaf, and it didn't have a name. Well, you had a working name for it, CLA Engine. CLA Engine was the working name for a long time. Um, but but actually, I didn't like the name CLA. I think everybody else liked the name CLA Engine, but I hated it because I had a dash in it, um, and I just thought when you're running the generator and stuff, it's going to be annoying to have that dash there. So I was. I was very insistent that the name be as few characters as possible without any special characters. Yes, I remember that. And we had a we had a uh, a Google Doc or a Quip Doc, which had well, we had everyone list a whole bunch of different naming possibilities for it. And I'm really glad we chose Oakleaf in the end because there were some <laughs> very yeah. random things in there. Um, yeah, we want, I think Oakleaf the name Open CLI framework really sums it up. Yeah. I think I think that one was one that we. I remember the naming process. I feel like it took like two, maybe three months, and it, it, it longer than we wanted <laughs> it to it take because we really wanted to launch it. It took. Um, a, I think it took a week, but it felt like yeah. two or three months to you. <laughs> maybe. Um, I remember there was one crane that I loved, but it you know it it had to be like available on GitHub and npm, and it I don't think it was available on either. But I, you know, maybe in a alternate universe, it could have been named Crane. Yeah, so then we um, released the framework, and you know it was interesting. Let's talk, we can talk a little bit about the reception that it received. You know, when we released it, it was interesting that a lot of a lot of developers had actually been following CLI Engine, and they began following began following Oakley yeah, as well. Yeah, we were working out in the open, so CLI Engine existed. It was undocumented, and yeah, uh, um, yeah I, I don't remember who it was, but I do remember at least one person mentioned that they had been trying to get my code to work for them with CLI Engine, and I, I felt a little bit bad because there was a lot of a lot of alleys I went down on that project that uh, that we we then closed off. There's, uh, you know, really, I think when building a framework, there's just a lot of experimentation that goes along with that. If you want it to be good you've got to try everything out. And so for me, that meant, you know, first writing a native JavaScript, then we used um, Flow. We didn't really like that so much. Then we tried out TypeScript. We ended up loving that. Uh, but those were all big differences in the code base that, that were massive uh, changes. Um, and then JavaScript also changed a lot along the way. You know, we started this in 2014. JavaScript didn't have classes then. And classes are just a great way to describe CLI, a CLI command. A CLI command is a class. Um, 
And so, you know, when that came out, we need we jumped on that async await, same kind of thing. JavaScript didn't have promises. I don't. I'm pretty sure it didn't even have promises when we started. Um, so, anyways, like there, there was a lot of change. There was a lot of toil, um, more so than you'd have in a normal project when you're just trying to get a product out the door. But when it is code that other people need to interact with, um, I think it's it's important to spend the time on that. So. Yeah, you know, we we got great feedback and people jumped on it. I wasn't, you know, really sure how a CLI framework would, would, um, you know, how popular that kind of thing would be. But uh, it does seem like we hit the nail on the head. We had a lot of people using it. Um, it's actually the the top open source project at Salesforce. Um, and we've in terms of GitHub stars, I think we've got I think over three thousand now. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's That's it's done very well. It's done very well. I, I'm. The thing that makes me really happy is seeing when people, you know, how many people are building CLIs on Oakcliff, uh, both companies and individuals. Mm -hmm. um, everything from, you know, the Netlify CLI to, you know, Apollo to Apollo and uh, what's the crypto one? Lisk. Yeah. 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 And, and then there's, you know, individuals building CLIs too. I think there's, there's a couple of World Cup ones that are really popular. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah a lot of those, and I think, and there's a lot of stuff we don't hear about because I think probably the most common use case for CLIs is people doing internal tools. You know, yeah. it's just a lot easier to have admin stuff be a CLI than be a web thing. Um, and so we we get a lot of stuff about that. And the only unfortunate thing is that we never know when people are using it. Um, but uh, but we know just through uh, people reaching out to us and letting us know what they're working on. Yeah, and we you know we we take a look at npm and at GitHub, so it gives us a sense. But it gives us an idea, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we have a pretty active community in Spectrum, and we get a lot of questions and feedback in there uh, from developers building on Oakleaf. And I'm curious, based on all the feedback and questions we've gotten, uh, going back, is there anything that you would build differently based on the feedback we've gotten since since launch? Um. If hindsight was twenty twenty, and you could you could change something. I mean, there was a lot of that along the way. You know, like using Go. Um, I really, if if I could have known what I know now and stuck with TypeScript and and just pure Node from the beginning, that would have been that would have been really good. But um, we got there. I think it it it, uh, it you know the change was. I will say that the change was the the pace that I modified the code base and the toil that I went through was not something that went over well internally because we had internal people using the CLI to build things and 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 when I would make changes that would break a lot of our internal tools so that was a that was a judgment call I think that, that we had to make like we felt that it was more important to have a really great framework than uh, the cost of this of breaking things now internally. Yeah, I, and I think, yeah. we, you know, when we released the documentation for Oakleaf more officially, I think that was a line in the sand of we're not going to break things yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think that's another thing that, that maybe isn't isn't clear to people, but the framework is something that we think is stable. You know, we when we came out with that V1, we did, we did not want to make any changes at all because we knew how much it, 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 it hurt to make even simple changes early on, even if they were better changes, you know, the fact that you're changing something and having some kind of required change that might break something was was extremely painful. So 
a big goal for us was for cut for you know the open source community that uses Oaklift to never have to deal with those problems. So um, thankfully, we're we're still in good shape there. We we haven't had anything come up. I thought there might be something that came up that we were like, oh, we should have done this differently. Maybe now we need to do a breaking change. Um, I, I think we've made the right decisions, but you know, it's been it's been uh, about I think about a year to the day actually. Uh, oh wow! No, maybe I think it was March actually of of two thousand eighteen. Um, so a little over a year, and that's still the case. But I'm sure it'll come. I, I my hope is that when it comes to breaking changes, we can tie it around the LTS releases of Node. So right now we support Node eight and above. Um, Node eight will be end of life in April of 2020. Um, I hope that we can batch up any breaking change that might come between now and then, and um, use that as an opportunity both to move to Node 10. Um, in, in Oaklift 2.0, um, and also add any breaking chains that we feel are necessary, you know, as long as they're not too uh, too difficult for people. Okay, we've talked a lot about the history of the Heroku command line interface and of um, Oaklift, the OpenCLI framework. Let's talk a little bit more now about the future. So if you were going to, you know, you've spent a lot of time thinking about the CLIs. If you were to think about what command line interfaces will, would look like in five years, 10 years, maybe 20 years' time, what do you think the command line interface of the future will be like? Oh, it looks like PowerShell. Uh, Microsoft solved this problem. Um, <laughs> PowerShell is incredibly good. It's it's like this object-oriented shell where you can, you know, it's it's amazing. It, it supports all sorts of great things um, that I wish we had in the Unix world. Um, what you know, kind of things? Uh, the object-oriented stuff. So, like, you, you can have an output of a CLI be an object that you can then like run methods and, and, and get properties on. And that's, that's mm-hmm. really cool. It was actually a little bit of an inspiration for super table. One of the, one of the tools we more recently launched in, in the, in CLI UX, um, where the end user can have more control over what they're being displayed, you know? So the use case that I always like to give is I should be able to go in the CLI and say, give me a list of all of my Ruby apps ordered by the last time they were deployed. Um, you know, I think PowerShell, you could not only do that, but then you could then take it a step further and say, give me all of the Ruby apps ordered by the date of last deploy and get this specific configure from them, you know, um, which is something that you could do with the right level of Xargs and awk and things, but it, it would be incomprehensible and, um, PowerShell is able to do these things much more uh, natively. Um, what do you think about artificial intelligence and how that could impact the future command line interface? Um, that's not something I've thought a lot about, but I, I, I would say one thing I think that, that is missing in CLIs is help. Help is is just part of using a CLI in a way that like using the web is not. Like You never read the help part of a of a web app unless you're really stuck. Um, whereas when you're using a CLI, you're reading the help, even if it's, I read the help for the Roku CLI, even though I worked on it for five years and I wrote all the code myself because I, I just forget what, oh, what is this flag named again? Um, so that's just part of the experience is using the help. So I think if that could be brought into the experience of using it. So, you know, I, I'm talking autocomplete, but like a level above that. Like when I start typing something, it should, below where I'm typing, it should show like what I'm doing, what I'm working with, if it's valid, if it's not valid. Um, 
things like that. So the area I could see AI getting involved is is maybe with some. Um, I'm thinking like Splunk. It's been a while since I've used Splunk, but I think Splunk has like a little, when you do the search, it sort of like guesses what you might be wanting to do. Uh, maybe that's an area where where uh, AI could, could you know, help guide you along to figure out what are some, some common tasks. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that AI is all about predicting what users are going to do. Yeah. And I think that when, in more visual interfaces, we're getting ser- things are getting served up more and more and more versus you kind of having to go out and, you know, find find them. Whereas the, the CLI right now is pretty much, you know, you still have to type in the command yourself. And so I wonder if there's like a stage we can get to where the CLI sort of knows what you're going to type before yeah. you even think of it. And then you basically say, yep, that's what I wanted to do. I, I also think, um, and this this sort of is an odd thing to think about, but... A next level CLI, I think, should use the mouse. And I guess at that level, it's technically not a you know CLI. It's a it's a GUI. But um, you know, I think Slack is really good at this. Like uh, or like get a, a Gmail Actions, uh, where like you know you can click to unsubscribe from a newsletter or RSVP for an event without even opening email. Slack has like the button and stuff mm-hmm. where you can perform actions. I think like for a confirmation dialogue, that could be really good. Um, notifications and things. I think for, you know, select one of these three things, I think sometimes could be done a lot better in a CLI than having to click. Um, obviously, you need uh, also the way to script things. That's really important in the CLI. Not use those things if you don't have to. But yeah, I think I think that, um, you know, the, the CLI world could, could, could be really amazing, even better than it is now. But uh, I'm not sure I follow. So you mean the mouse would you would use your mouse and something would happen? So um, you know, do you know Slack buttons, Slack actions? I think they call it. But it's like you copy and paste a URL into Mm -hmm. Slack, and then for everybody in the room, like a like a poll or something, like you can click to like vote uh, inside the inside of that. Like you could conceive a CLI having a similar sort of experience, where like you run a command that needs to like prompt you for something, Mm -hmm. and you could just click a a button instead of Ah. having to like run the command again with a different flag or something like that. Yes. Okay. I see yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. That would be really cool. Okay. So I think we're running out of time. Um, let's talk a little bit about Oakleaf Conf, which is the first, yeah. the first Oakleaf conference that's happening May the 31st here in San Francisco. And it's for CLA builders. Um, the focus is on Oakleaf, um, but it's for all CLA builders really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell me a bit more about what you're hoping to get out of Oakleaf Conf. Uh, the main thing I want to see is is how people are using using Oakleaf and how they're how they're building the CLI experiences. You know, I've, I've of course I've had a lot of experience myself building a CLI, but you know I want to see what other people are doing and I want to learn from the community and, and figure out what what uh, maybe Oakleaf could look like. If there's anything that's missing that that we haven't thought about, um, yeah, that's you know just see how people are using it. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I and that's what I'm excited about as well. And meeting some of the people developing oh, of course, on yeah. it in person too. As it's been interesting watching all everything happen on, on GitHub, but it'll be it'll be great to sort of see you know, see the faces of all the people who are yeah. developing on it. Um, and yeah, to get wait. their feedback. Um, I think sometimes it's easier to get feedback in person, so um, perhaps there'll be more feedback that way. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jeff. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. You can learn more about Oakleaf at oakleaf.io. Um, thanks. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.